0: Welcome to the Indirect Vision Podcast, where it is our mission to help pre-dental and dental students make better decisions through the application of new and unique perspectives. I'm Andrew, and today Dan and I will be interviewing Dr. Tim Gengel. Dr. Gengel is a general dentist in East Texas, where he is a 50-50 practice owner in three practices. He received his BS in biology from University of Nebraska in 2012 and earned his DMD from Midwest Midwestern University, Arizona in 2017. Dr. Gangle is interested in dental implants, digital dentistry, surgical guides, and 3D printing. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Gangle.
1: Yeah, thank you guys for having me on.
0: Of course. So, Dr. Gangle, I follow you on Instagram and your Instagram is always flooded with awesome photos and videos of dental implants um can you just tell us what got you interested in all this gory dental implant stuff
1: uh actually my partner mostly so i graduated three and a half years ago from midwestern and um, i was just looking to go somewhere where i'd have a good mentor and i could learn and uh i found my partner out in east texas and he does a ton of full arch implant cases and He's gotten to the point now where that's all he does. So I went out there and I, coming out of school, I didn't wasn't particularly interested in only dental implants, but um, meeting him, he does a ton of those cases and I got to watch him do a ton at first. And then it kind of transitioned into him showing me and teaching me to do them. And that kind of got me interested in it. And I, the more of those cases I did and the more fillings I did, um, the more I realize, I like those surgery cases a lot better than than doing fillings all day.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. We're learning Class Twos right now, so I can't wait <laughs> I to the learn <laughs> learn implants. <laughs> so, so you're saying that you learned most of the implants from your pra- from your uh, co owner of the practices? Is that right?
1: That yeah, that's right. He's he's got about. 10 more years of experience than me. He's been out for a while. And so I was an associate working for him. Uh I have done uh, quite a few implant classes and uh, continuing education classes and um, a lot of grafting, soft tissue grafting and sinus augmentation and guided bone regeneration types of courses. Um, But a lot of the full arch implant stuff, um, the cases that I post a lot of, although I post some other stuff on there too, I learned a lot of that from him. And it's, you can, huh. really can't beat having someone right there who's been doing it for for 10 or 15 years and if you ever have a question they can be right there to help you out if you have a complication or anything like that
2: so hmm. do you handle all of the surgical aspects uh not in your you're talking about doing both surgery and restorations is that correct
1: yes that's correct so we do he does as well um the surgeries and the prosthetic part of it. And I do general dentistry as well. So I'm still doing fillings. Uh, I do a bunch of endo. I really like endo, uh, crowns. We do a little bit of everything. He doesn't do so much anymore. And I'm doing mostly, mostly root canals that our other dentists aren't comfortable doing that they refer over and then implant cases. Uh, but we kind of handle the whole process, which I like, uh, We do the surgery, put the implant in and restore it ourselves. And on those full-arch cases, we're doing the restorations as well. So we don't have referring dentists that refer to us. There's a couple that have sent people over, um, but we don't really work like a specialist office where we're referral based. It's more um, word of mouth referrals and our patients kind of spread the word and we do some advertising and marketing and that's how we get most of our patients.
0: And How the, many? Uh, uh, oh, go for it. Oh, go ahead. How many cases do you do a week?
1: Are you, like full arch cases? Are you asking? Yeah,
0: the full the full arch cases.
1: I only do I probably do two to three full arch cases a month, so probably five or six arches a month. My partner probably does three to four cases a week, so he's doing five or six arches a week. He does more than I do because that's all that he does. Um, I'm still doing a lot, a lot of endo, and a lot of single implants. And so, for single implants, he'll send them over to me, especially if it needs grafting, guided bone regeneration, sinus augmentation, that kind of stuff. If it's a full arch case, we kind of split those, but he does more than I do because he, those are the only cases that he does now. So I'm probably doing one a week, one every two weeks.
2: So when you're doing a full arch. Implant case, what kind of occlusal con- considerations do you have to make? Because aren't uh, implants not supposed to technically be an occlusion?
1: They can be an occlusion, uh, but you want even occlusion. And it's different for every patient, uh, whether you're going to do canine guidance, group function, if you're going to change the video, A lot of the patients that we get in, uh, we offer IV sedation. So a lot of these patients that we're getting haven't been to any dentist in 10 or 20 years. And a lot of times their teeth are so broken down that they don't have a good vertical stop. So you have to determine the video yourself. Um, but they do really well in occlusion on the full arch cases. Obviously, you're going to have to have occlusion, but you want even occlusion. You want to make sure they're not having any TMD issues before you go to your final restoration or you might need to change the vertical because you're changing the vertical so often that we have them wear a temporary device for four to six months and you got to make sure all that stuff's styled in before you go to your final. Uh, but it's kind of, it's it's similar to teeth where you're looking for a lot of times you're having canine guidance or group function. You want nice even occlusion, you don't want any interferences. We get them in a night guard once we get them into their final restoration to protect uh, the zirconia or whatever, whatever material we choose to use for that case. <laughs>
0: So, Dr. Gengel, you mentioned that you you took a few CE classes and implants after graduation. Which CE courses would you say gave you the best return on investment?
1: As far as implants go, um, we place hyacinth implants, and I did the hyacinth, it's called the surgical master course. The guy that taught it, it's taught by several different people, but the guy that did it when I went was named David Chong. Uh, He practices in New York. He was really good. I think as far as implant courses that I've taken outside of just hands-on mentorship in my office, that's probably the one that I got the most out of. It covered implants and soft tissue grafting and bone grafting. And it was more of an advanced course. They also have a basic surgical course through Hyacinth but that's probably the one that I got the most out of. And maybe it's because it was one of the more recent ones. So I was a little more experienced before I went to that one. Um, Cause I also did a, there's one called Russo seminars. It's in South Carolina as a grafting course. I went to that. That was really good. Um, I'm big into surgical guides. I love 3d printing and designing the prosthetics first and then working back to basically the implant position off of that. Almost all of the implants that I placed all place with a 3D printed surgical guide that I designed in our office. Uh, for that, I Corey Glenn, I don't know, he works for Blue Sky Bio. He does a lot of free videos online, but he also does continuing education courses. I took his comprehensive guided surgery course and his full arch course. Um, and it's mostly, doesn't teach surgery as much as it's teaching the surgical guide part of it. But I'm a big fan of guided surgery. I think if you do all the, Planning ahead of time, and then the day of the surgery goes a lot smoother.
2: Do you uh, <clears throat> do you have any uh, books that you would recommend on the subject of implants?
1: Um, I like I said, I haven't read a ton of books on implants. I've done more um, CE in person and online CE. Right now, I'm working on, and it's pretty good. The California Implant Institute and UNLV have an online implant continuum. I think it's 300 CE hours, and I'm about halfway through. That stuff's pretty good. I think you learn more from, I maybe it's just the way I learn, but from videos and actually seeing it, um, I get a little bit more out of that than from uh, than from a book, and even Instagram, meeting people on there. I've met. I just started posting on there in late June, so a little less than six months ago. And i met a ton of people on there that have helped out with a lot of cases. People like Dr. Sonata, who you guys had on here. His mm-hmm. stuff is crazy good. <laughs> kind of gives you a goal to work towards. Uh, but building a network of people like that where when you have questions to bounce off them, a lot of those guys are real responsive and they'll help you out when you have questions as well.
0: Yeah, and we want to give you a little shout out. Um, what's your Instagram name what's your instagram tag
1: my instagram is at t gangle like my name t g e n g e l d m d it.
0: so at t tim gangle
1: dmd t gangle Gangle, dmd
0: oh t gangle dmd yeah definitely check it out because i i follow you and i watch like all of your videos and your stories and they're they're really cool um so dr gangle why do you why do you think that not every dentist does implants
1: i think it's becoming more and more common Uh, but i think part of it is that people are nervous about implants and and surgery because there's a lot of dentists out there that don't do surgical extractions and they'll refer all that kind of stuff and you do have to have a little bit more knowledge when you start getting into even surgical extractions Um, Some people are real nervous about reflecting a flap because they're just doing fillings crowns and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But if you, if you do the right CE and talk to people who've been doing it, it's, it's really something that I enjoy doing. So I've gotten into the surgery part of it, but I think part of it is a fear factor that what if something goes wrong and it keeps, keeps people from diving into it. Um, And I would say that's where another area where a good mentor helps, because if you are nervous about that kind of stuff, so having someone with a ton of experience there to help you can jump you forward a long way, uh, because you don't have to be so worried about it. Um,
2: how, long did anyway. Tom, <clears throat> uh, how long did it take you before you felt uh, extremely competent at the uh, implant part?
1: So we got to place a few implants in school, but I definitely didn't feel real, real ready to go on implants coming straight out of school. It probably took a year or so. And really the key is just go one step at a time. Start with the easier cases. Uh, Maxillary molars, premolars have a nice wide ridge and plenty of height. Start with cases like that and just work your way up. Don't try and jump into a really tough case for your first one if you start placing into nice wide ridges with a bunch of bone and you get real comfortable with those, you can kind of move up to the next, the next step. Um, I would avoid anterior cases at first or anything with a real thin ridge. That's going to need grafting or anything where you're real tight on space, going to the nerve canal or something like that. But just start with easy cases, just like anything, one step at a time, work your way up and you slowly take on more difficult cases and you just get comfortable with it. But it it takes a couple of years, and the full arch cases definitely take longer. That's not something that you, I would start with. That's some, that's one of those things where, when I started off as an associate three three and a half years ago, I when my schedule was slow, I would just go in and watch my partner do those big surgeries, hmm. uh, and so I got to see a bunch of them before I ever did one. And then once I got comfortable with Single implants and grafting. Then I kind of moved on to doing some of those full arch cases, starting with kind of as a logical next step. The two implant lower overdentures are a good place to start getting into kind of a a full arch, if you would, uh, restoration because those are a little bit of the easier full arch cases, and and work your way up and just have somebody that knows knows what they're doing available to bounce questions off of. Because uh, hmm. these days with the internet and social media, you can build a network, meet a lot of people on there, or even just with group messages with classmates. Once you get out of dental school, if you have classmates that are doing a lot of something that you want to do, just kind of keep in touch with them. And it's almost like a study group um, in some of these group text messages where me and some of my buddies from dental school bounce questions off each other.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, community is huge and you can learn so much from other people, Um, But what what do you do? I mean, after three and a half years of practicing, I'm I'm sure that not every implant has gone perfectly. What do you do when an implant doesn't go the way you planned? And how do you overcome that fear of maybe making a mistake again?
1: Yeah, they definitely don't go perfectly. And like anything, it's kind of a learning experience. And you're going to make some some little mistakes and you learn from them. And it's not always something that you did if an implant fails. I mean, implants are about 96 to 98% successful. So you're going to have a few out of 100 that are going to fail. Everybody has failures. If they tell you that they don't, then they're either lying to you or they haven't done that many implants. (laughs) But uh, I think pre-planning and case selection is huge to keep your success rate high. you got to watch out for smokers and people with uncontrolled diabetes if they're a1c's that's one of the things we always check before we'll place an implant on someone who's diabetic is make sure that uh, it's well controlled and that their a1c is not real high or we'll talk to them about about diet and lifestyle and working on getting that down before we'll do implants because um, that's one of the things that'll cause implants to fail and uh, when you do have one fail you always want to try and learn from it and find out why and sometimes there's not a real obvious reason uh, but you're definitely going to have implants fail and you take the implant out and you graft and you try and see what went wrong the first time and correct it, come back in four to six months and place another one um, and just go from there. And it's, it's one of those things like anything in dentistry, it's not always going to go perfect. Sometimes you'll make a surgical guide and the guide won't fit and you'll have to do it freehand. So I think it's important to be able to do it both ways and not to have the guide as a crutch, but more as a, a way to make yourself more accurate and get that implant in that perfect position for your crown or prosthetic or whatever you're putting over the top of it.
2: So doctor, do you ever have any trouble, or at least to my knowledge, implants aren't covered through insurance. Do you ever have any trouble? I don't know for any lack of a better term, uh, selling <laughs> implants. to
0: yeah. patients.
1: Yeah. Um, it can be tough and it depends on your patient base. Our offices are two or three of them are fee for service. And so we're not in network with any insurances. I do think some insurances have implant coverage. I'm not super familiar because we do have insurance coordinators that, that kind of come in and talk to the patients about all that stuff. But there are patients that will opt for a bridge over an implant a lot of times because insurance will cover it. Uh, And sometimes that, Just makes sense for for that patient if it's something that an implant's not something they can afford financially and their insurance will cover a lot on a bridge. Maybe it makes more sense for them to do a bridge because that's their only option, or leaving a missing tooth there. Uh, Bridges aren't a bad option sometimes. I don't like them near as much as implants, but uh, implants are an investment and. most people, when you when you talk to the patient about it and talk about the advantages of implants, we talk about if the other adjacent teeth are in really good shape, not having to prep those teeth and kind of mess with two other teeth when you really only have a problem on, on one missing tooth. We'll kind of talk them through it. And most people see the advantage long-term of, of not doing something like a bridge or leaving the missing space, but it's really up to the patient. All you can do is give them the information and and then a treatment plan and, and let them decide from there but it, it insurance does does cause some bar- barriers there sometimes but you'll get comfortable talking to patients about implants and and there really are a lot of advantages to implants over over doing something like a bridge or a partial
0: yeah and you have to replace bridges a lot more often than yeah, implants that's, that's so thing. you, you bridge, end up saving money yeah, in the long run
1: yeah. Yeah. But I kind of what we talked about. If you get a cavity under a bridge or it breaks, you got three teeth to fix again instead of just one.
0: Dr. Gangle, I want to transition to life after dental school. Like, did you, can you tell us a little bit about your journey after you finished Midwestern? Did you go straight to Texas and go in 50 50 in those practices, or did you do something else before purchasing the practices?
1: I did go straight to Texas, but I was an associate. So actually, um, I don't know if you guys probably not know Kira Dent used to work. She used to work at Midwestern. Um, She was in the simulation lab and she kind of ran the lab part of it. She left and started a a group that I don't think or a business. I don't think she has it anymore, but she helped connect dentists who were looking for associates with um, other dentists that were looking for associate positions, which coming out of school was me. And so I filled out her form that she had and uh, told her that I was looking to live somewhere warm because I got used to Arizona and I wasn't looking to come back to the Nebraska cold or anything like that. (laughs) And so I wasn't particularly looking for Texas, but she texted me and said, Hey, I got an awesome practice in Texas. If you'd be interested, they're looking for an associate. And so I flew out to East Texas and met my partner, Dr. Kendall at the time, who was my, um, my boss and interviewed with him and it just seemed like a good fit. And he was doing these awesome cases and he seemed like a great guy. who would be fun, fun to work with easy going. Um, so yeah, I went straight out to East Texas and started as an associate. And then we ended up buying a practice together, not the one that I worked in. Uh, it was more of a startup. We bought the building and ended a startup about two years ago. And that's still, working on growing. It's our slowest office. The startup is is tough. Uh, And then this past year, actually, I ended up buying in in May. So it was kind of a crazy time to buy in because it was during all the the COVID shutdown stuff we had just reopened. But he had two offices about an hour apart. The one I worked in was one of them. And so I bought into those two as a 50-50 partner also so that we're... Now, 50-50 partners in all three offices that we have.
0: So, can you tell us why did you choose to do a startup instead of just buying an existing practice?
1: Uh, That's a good question. A startup is a lot more work. (laughs) If I could go back, I don't know if I'd do it again because it's a lot more work to get off the ground and it's a lot more difficult compared to buying an existing office. The office that we bought was a dentist's office already, and the guy kind of closed down and turned the keys into the bank, and the bank owned the building, so we didn't actually buy the practice. We just bought the building, and it came with a bunch of dental equipment that was already in there because the guy had kind of walked away from the office and turned everything into the bank, so we went out there and looked at it and decided um, that it looked like a good opportunity, and we were looking to bring on some more dentists. And so uh, we ended up buying that and doing it as a startup. And I'll tell you, startups is a lot of work and a lot of upfront investment and lots of marketing. (laughs) So uh, I don't know that I would recommend doing a startup to anyone. I know there's a lot of people that do it and they kill it, but it is a lot of work. Definitely.
2: Do you feel like you're Pulling yourself between three different practices, maybe spreading yourself too thin. Maybe that's why the startup has been difficult or.
1: um, uh, I think it would be easier if you're the, the dentist in the office, but not really because I don't do, I've been lucky. We had an office manager. That's awesome when I started and she goes between all the offices and kind of keeps everything together. So I don't go out to that other office very often. I don't, do a lot of work for it. She does a lot of it. Um, It's a big investment up front and I was doing more before, but I really don't feel spread too thin now because I, I rarely have to do anything for that other office and it's kind of getting going, but she does a lot of stuff for it. So having a good team around you to where you're not trying to do too much at once is a key. If you find hire somebody and find that they're a key person. Um, She's been with my working with my partner for, Almost as long as he's been practicing. So, finding some people like that, key team members, can make your life a lot easier.
0: Yeah, and you recently you said you bought the practice in May, right?
1: Yeah, the one that I work in, and then the other one that was not a startup. I bought into those towards the end of May. So we actually yeah, were so... going through all our all our process of buying in while we weren't even open in March and April because we were closed down for coronavirus. So that was interesting. Process. Yeah, so
0: yeah. so I mean you're not even a year in. Of course it's going to be difficult right away, but I think in the long run you'll be happy that you did all that. Um yeah. can we talk can we talk about the 50-50 practice ownership? Um why did you choose to do the 50-50 and what are some of the v- benefits of doing it that way?
1: Well, I I always kind of wanted a partner. I actually looked at buying an office straight out of school with one of my dental school buddies just because it's fun to have somebody to work with and bounce ideas off of. And I didn't want to be that dentist that's sitting there isolated by himself. That's kind of why I enjoy the Instagram and these CE classes too. You build a network, you meet a bunch of people and it's fun having another dentists to talk with. Even when I'm out hanging out with friends back from dental school, we still talk about teeth half the time. It's, I've been lucky to really enjoy dentistry. Um, but i I went in with my partner, as an I was an associate, and he offered for me to buy in 50-50, uh, which excited me. I would want equal partnership, and that's kind of what he wanted, uh, and it makes feels good that he values me, and want, wants me to stay there long-term and be a 50-50 partner in all the practices. Um, so it wasn't really something that I necessarily chose, but it was something that I was real happy about, and um, having a partner is a lot of fun, having somebody to... Bounce stuff off of and talk, talk dentistry with, and uh, get excited when you're growing and when you get wins, and um, work through it with when you have frustrating times. It's mm. I like having a partner. You just got to make sure you find somebody that you fit well with. I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump into a partnership with someone that you'd never worked with before because I know that a lot of them mm. can go poorly. Mm.
0: That makes sense. Um, And while we're on that topic of your partner, let's talk about mentorship. Um, Dan and I were talking before this, and I have a very positive connotation to the word mentorship, and Dan has a more negative connotation to the word mentorship. Can you tell us, can you convince Dan the benefits of having a mentor?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, and I think a lot of people do get a little bit of a bad taste because a lot of times coming out and starting an associateships, I think I got really lucky that the first one that I went to was a good fit because a lot of people that I know have gone through a lot of bad fits and had people that were mentors that kind of, I wouldn't say they sold themselves as mentors, but then they. there's a lot of people that'll take all the good cases, not re- aren't really interested in helping you grow and are more interested in, them being able to do the cases they want to do and you doing all the stuff that they don't want to do. So there's definitely uh, bad fits out there. But as far as the good side of mentorship, if you find a good mentor who's truly interested in growing people and growing you, it, I, if I went out and bought an office by myself, I don't think I would be doing a third of the cases that I'm doing now because it propelled me forward having him to teach me, uh, do it hands-on, I think it would take me 10 or 15 years by myself to get to where I'm comfortable doing some of the procedures that I'm doing because I've had a mentor to teach me along the way. So I think that's kind of shot me ahead. Um, And I've I've learned a lot that I wouldn't have learned if I was trying to do it by myself. So Mm. my biggest thing is make sure you find a mentor, but don't trust just anyone. you got to feel it out. If if something feels fishy, it probably is. Find somebody who seems like a good person who's interested in growing, seems like they're interested in growing you and not just themselves and isn't completely money focused. So it's hard to find a good mentor. And I think I just got really, really lucky. Um, But if you find someone who's, who's willing to help you grow, I, I don't think there's much better way. I don't think there's any continuing education course that can compare to that. Um, or any books that you can read, anything like that.
0: Mm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, you kind of talked about this, but I want to go into it a little deeper. What qualities do you think make an ideal mentor and a uh, mentoree?
1: Yeah, well, mentoree, you got to be willing to learn. Um, you got to be willing to admit that you don't know everything because you really don't, you learn a ton your first couple years out of dental school, and I think we're really lucky because Midwestern gives you such a good clinical experience because um, I've met other dentists that have come from other schools that have said they've done eight or ten crowns in school, and that was their requirement, and all these numbers, and we tell them, I kind of tell them what our experience was like, and their minds are blown by the patient base that we have out in, in there. So I think we're lucky that we get a good clinical experience and kind of get a head start that way. Um, but even still, just as far as going in, you got to know that you don't know everything, have an open mind, be driven and willing to learn and just hungry for information. Um, but as far as looking for a mentor and finding good qualities and mentor, find somebody that, that doesn't seem real, like they're super money driven. Obviously you want to get somebody who's successful, but look at the cases they're doing, find somebody who's Doing the cases that you want to do, and they're doing a great job at them. Um, go have lunch with them, meet them, make sure they seem like a down-to-earth person who's interested in in helping you grow. Uh, but yeah, I would say s- surround yourself with somebody that's that you want to be like, and that you that's doing the cases that you want to do, uh, and then spend time. If you're if you have downtime in your schedule, a lot of times when you're first starting off as an associate, your schedule's a little bit slower and don't just sit in the office on your phone. Ask if you can go in there and kind of almost shadow the person that you're working for on some of those, those bigger cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of nice for me in our office because we do a lot of IV sedation. So the patients are, are sedated. So I was able to ask a lot of questions, um, without feeling like I'm making people feel unsure. And, uh, and so that was kind of a nice, a nice thing to it, And also having him there to mentor on sedation because I went and did, I think it's Rocky Mountain Sedation. I think they've changed the name to ADMA. I did that sedation course um, and we do moderate conscious IV sedation. But coming out and having a mentor on that as well, just when you're not real comfortable right at first coming out of a course, uh, having someone who's been doing sedation for 10 years learned a ton on that as well
0: man yeah so the key thing that i'm getting out of this is that no amount of ce will match having a good solid mentor um which i really like because i mean that's what it boils down to and Dan, I hope uh, I hope you're convinced, man, that having a mentor is a good thing. <laughs> well, you're getting me there. So,
2: <laughs> well, and I'm unfortunately,
1: all for CE and and, uh, and it's more available than ever with the online CE and and social media, and even learning stuff on Facebook dental groups, Instagram groups, connecting with people on there. This it's a lot easier to connect with people than it probably has been in the past, and to get information. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you kind of said it. The way I feel is there's nothing better than having a mentor to to guide you through it hands on and, and be there when you do have your first complications in some of your tougher cases. Mm,
0: mm, exactly. Especially a mentor that's in the same office as you. So yeah. I think you're I think you're in a really great situation. Um, but unfortunately we're running out of time. So I just have one last question for you, and that is what's one piece of advice you would give yourself as a first year dental student, if you could go back and talk to yourself back then?
1: I would say as a first year dental student, I would say to just enjoy it and that, um, you're going to be able to handle it going into dental school. I felt like I was going to be, have no life, just be studying 24 seven, all these other students that are coming in are smarter than you, and you're going to have to work and have no life. And it didn't end up being that way. Um, so going into dental school, I would say you can handle it, stay focused, but have some fun. I've met some of my, that are still my best friends that I talk to every day or people that I met in dental school um, that we keep in touch with and tougher, a little tougher now with COVID, but we're going on a lot of trips and seeing those guys a lot since we don't live in the same place anymore. Um, but I would say just enjoy it. You're going to be able to manage it. You got to work hard, but it's really, it's really a good time. I loved I love dental school. Huh.
0: Oh, great. Well, great. Well, thanks for
1: everywhere, but Midwestern, Midwestern especially was awesome. Awesome. Experience. Oh yeah.
0: Midwestern's a very great place. Very special place. Well, well, thank you so much, Dr. Gengel for joining us today. We really appreciate all your time.
1: Thank you guys for having me.
0: And thanks to all of our listeners and join us again next week on another episode of the indirect vision podcast.